Welcome to the Desert City Church Podcast. What you're about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are spending the summer in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a big word, but it simply means repetition of the law or a repeating of the law. It is a book comprised of a series of sermons Moses gave the people of God before they were to enter the promised land. They had spent 40 years wandering. It was a time of formation, identity, and unexpected lessons. These divine words come to us out of the wilderness. Come back in and grab a seat. We're still trying to figure out some of the lighting in this uh, new space. And so this week I'm going to preach from up here. I feel like I'm elevated up higher, but I think it's lighter and you can see my face. So we'll see how it goes. Um, but if you want to come, come have a seat and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So a couple summers back, maybe two or three summers ago, I was on the local news. Uh, very exciting uh, for me, my small 15 minutes of fame. And I was on the news because I was hiking in the middle of the summertime. And uh, some of you know this story. Um, I, I was hiking Gateway Trail up by uh, Thompson Peak. And I really enjoy hiking in the summertime. I don't mind the heat. Actually, I, I kind of like being out in the heat. And so I show up, park my car, and as I'm walking up, uh, the local news station is there. And they're running a story on uh, people who are hiking and taking their pets hiking in the middle of the summer. So they've had all these kind of emergencies where they take their dog out, and then the dog starts to overheat, and they have to call in like paramedics to help. And so they're, they're asking, like, what, would you do that? Like, what do you think about people taking their dogs hiking? And, you know, I, I give this response on the spot thinking, like, you know, it's whatever the, you know, the owner wants to do. I think it's probably a little bit rough to take the dog out and, you know, didn't really think much about it. But then I go home and I'm on the news that night. So I'm, like, showing my wife. I'm, like, we have to watch the news. I'm on TV. This is so fun. And we were, like, watching it. And I was sitting there. And I realized, like, my response was almost, like, I almost felt like I was, you know, you, you say something and then they take a quick clip of it. And I was talking about how it seems like something foolish to do in the middle of the summer in 110 plus temperature to take your dog on a trail. So I talked about, that seems like foolish to do. And I was like, wow, that sounded kind of harsh. And my wife looked at me and she said, the ironic thing is you being out there in 110 degree, that's foolish. You're the one that looks foolish. Like don't call other people that. And, and I was like, I, I know it's crazy, but I, I like that. I just like hiking in the middle of the summertime and even in the middle of the day. Um, there's something about it for me uh, that has become like sacred ground. And as I, as I hike um, in the middle of the summer, you get out into the wilderness, and it's like a spiritual experience, probably because you're not sure if you're going to die or not in the summertime. <laughs> um, I do take water with me. Uh, but there's something about being out in the desert, in the silence, uh, being removed from routine, removed from the city, that I just feel like I hear from God. I can connect with God. There's something sacred about that ground that I want to protect. There's something in the desert here in the wilderness um, for me that is just like this spiritual experience. And I, I was thinking about that even as uh, we were talking through this series called Out of the Wilderness this summer. And it's, it's a series on based off the book of Deuteronomy where we're kind of following um, Israel's uh, exodus out of Egypt and then wandering in the wilderness and then finally arriving in the promised land. And what happens is out of the wilderness come all sorts of unexpected lessons for the people of God. And I want to talk about these stories where these lessons happen in places just you wouldn't expect them to happen. 
And so last week we, we jumped into Deuteronomy and we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I just want to read this. It says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We talked about last week, Deuteronomy. Moses is speaking to the people of God, and they're just finishing this journey where they've wandered for 40 years, and it's time for them to enter into the promised land. This place that they've been anticipating, this place that they have been longing for. In Deuteronomy, uh, the, the, the word Deuteronomy, it's this big word, but it means the repetition of the law, the repeating of the law. Deuteronomy is made up of a series of sermons that Moses gives to the people of God before they enter into the promised land. So the first 30 chapters are him repeating this message of, here's what God has done in our lives. And there's this looking backward at their journey. Many of the people of God who are ready to enter, enter the promised land uh, have been born in the wilderness. They've come out of this wilderness experience. And before they enter into the next phase of their journey, Moses says, let's look backward and remember what God has done in our past. There was something that formative that happened in this wilderness experience. And we can't forget that as we move into the future. So he looks backward, but then he also looks forward and tells, tells the people of God, here's what we are anticipating in this next journey. Here's what we are preparing for. He looks backward and he looks forward. And we want to spend some time just reflecting on these lessons that God's people learned in the wilderness. Um, because I believe that God has similar lessons to us, whether it's for us as a church community or us individually or our families. There's lessons that come out of the wilderness uh, that need to be, we need to be in tune with. And I want to look today at this idea in, in verse 2 and 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 8 that it says uh, that he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. Because throughout scripture, there's this thing called the manna narrative that we find, this theme of this manna experience that comes out of the wilderness that uh, the authors of scripture keep coming back to. And so to look backward what we find is that this story takes place in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16, the people of God have come out of Egypt. Uh, we, we're very familiar maybe with, with that story, uh, with Moses, uh, with the plagues, uh, with the Passover, with the parting of the Red Sea. All these miraculous things happen, and they leave Egypt. And then here we have them in Exodus chapter 16. It says, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam, and came to the wilderness of Sin, which was between Elam and Sinai. So when you first read Sin, you might it, says, it looks like sin, and it's easy to think, well, what is that? Is that symbolic of like sin? Um, maybe that they're in this place of sin. Like, no, it's actually Sin. It's it's short for Sinai. So they're in the wilderness of Sinai, basically. And on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the wilderness, the whole community grumbled against Moses. And Aaron. If you're the kind of person that likes to mark your Bible up, circle that word grumbled. Grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand 
in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out to this desert to starve this entire assembly, assembly to death. So they leave uh, Elam, which is like this oasis. This is after they pass through the Red Sea, after God miraculously delivers them. God intervenes in ways that it's just insane when you, when you try to uh, look at how these miracles happen. Just this God intervening to set them free from their oppressors. A reminder that they've been in slavery for 400 years, crying out to God to deliver them, crying out to God to set them free, crying out to God to hear, and finally God intervenes miraculously and frees them from the Egyptians. And within six weeks, here they are, grumbling, looking back. You start to wonder, what in the, do, they, do they forget so quickly what God has done in their life? That now they're grumbling. Now they're actually longing to go back. I didn't think this was possible until I started having children. <laughs> and you start to see how quick and how short this memory is. We could have... Uh, a, a, a day with our children where we are having a blast. We could take them to Disneyland. We could go on an awesome trip to the beach. And the very next day, they're going to talk about how bored they are and how depressed life is. Like, and, I, and what they do to, to, to Marcy and I, I, I understand that I probably do that to God as well. Like, what have you done for me lately, God? But what's happening here is that leaving Egypt doesn't just solve all of the problems for Israel. It introduces them into the next challenge. They leave Egypt, which is this terrible place, and they're starting something new. But that doesn't mean that life is all going to be hunky-dory, everything's going to work out. And, and one thing that you'll find is that when God is up to something new and creative, it's tempting to just think that everything's going to be wonderful. It's tempting to think that now we've entered into this new season, it's no longer going to be challenging. And yet we find here with Israelites, that's not the case. They're up to this new thing. They're entering this new season, this new identity that they're stepping into. But it comes with its challenges. When God is at work in your life and he's doing something new and he's doing something creative, it's easiest to say, I just think it's supposed to be going wonderful. But when things start to go, when things become difficult and challenging, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay for a new church that is, uh, that is growing up together. Just because we're a part of this new season and this new thing that is creative in this community and we feel called doesn't mean it's just going to be easy. There are challenges that come. And I think what happens is so often we forget that. So often we think if I could just enter into a new season or enter into it maybe a new career path or a new relationship or, or go to even a new church, things will just start over and it's going to be easy. But what we find, especially here with the Israelites, is we might leave one set of problems, but stepping into something new that God has for us comes with challenges that need to be overcome. And this is life. When we hear about their complaining, I just wonder, uh, I wonder, like, if it happened here today, all the boomers would be looking at the Israelites and saying, what a bunch of millennials. Like, they, you know, they, they want the results, but they don't understand the process to get there. And but, but I think what is true of, of, you may say, of millennials or true of the Israelites, or, this is humanity. We step into new seasons and we face new challenges. Doesn't mean everything's going to just be easy sailing from here. 
We step into a new season. We face new challenges. And what happens here is they start grumbling about it. They start complaining. Within six weeks, they're crying out for Egypt. They're looking backwards and saying, if only we could go back to that. I know that we had been there for 400 years and were miserable, but if we could just get back there. How interesting that is. How We always tend to remember things being better than maybe they were. Here the Israelites are grumbling and complaining. I shared this um, maybe back in the fall when it comes to this idea of grumbling. Because I'm a person who grumbles. I'm cynical by nature. Um, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm depressed, although I've never like had that like diagnosed. Um, lovely to be married to, just ask my wife. And one of the things that I've been working at is like becoming this recovering cynic, where I just see everything that's wrong with the world. And, and I think part of me thinks like, you know, it makes me sound like I'm more enlightened than everyone else and smarter, and, um, and so I grumble. And grumbling does something that just, it almost like puts poison into the water of a community. And we see this grumbling that's taking place here with the people of God. And I, found, I came across this book about a year ago called Living into Community by Christine Pohl. And she says this about this idea of grumbling that I just think is so great. It says, in our communities, ingratitude can take another deadly form, grumbling, and complaint directed at God or others. In the familiar story of the Exodus, the children of Israel experience a series of extraordinary miracles in the rescue of Egypt. But soon they find themselves stuck in the wilderness where they grumble and remember inaccurately and take a posture of complaint against God and Moses. They remember their previous situation in Egypt as better than it was, and they do not see the benefits they are receiving in the midst of a difficult situation. But even more problematic, their murmuring reflects a breaking of the covenantal bond with their God, who has rescued them and provided for them. Grumbling is highly contagious within communities, and occasionally complaining and dissatisfaction be can become a way of life. Complaint is often overgeneralized, and soon everything seems unsatisfactory. While gratitude makes us more sensitive to the gifts of other people, other people bring into our lives, discontent blinds us to what we've been given. A scholar, Terence Freiheim, said, the lack of discernment of God's presence in the ordinary leads to a denial of God's activity in the extraordinary. This grumbling here, I would say, is a breakdown of discernment. It's one thing to lament and cry out about situations that are bad. When they're in Egypt and they are oppressed by people, people who are enslaving them, and they're crying out to God, there's discernment that leads to this righteous lament. But now, so quickly removed from that situation, there's this lack of discernment to see what God is doing in their life, what God has just walked them through, this exodus experience to put them into the wilderness. And here we have this lack of discernment to see what God is doing in the ordinary, and they're blind to the things that God is doing extraordinarily in their life. God just set you free from the most powerful, oppressive empire in history. And here we are grumbling about food and water in the wilderness. This food crisis has led to a faith crisis. They respond with grumbling. And I think what's so interesting here, in Deuteronomy, Moses talks about how 
how, how because of this, like they have this, uh, this relationship, relationship set up with God um, where he, he allows them to hunger, to test to see what's in their hearts. And as we, we find them grumbling here in Exodus 16, the next thing that happens is absolutely fascinating to me. There's this theological thing. God shows up, and it's time for God to respond. And how do we think that God is going to respond to their grumbling? I know how I respond to grumbling with my children. Just happened yesterday. Uh, my kids eat everything. We cannot keep our fridge full. Um, and I'll go to the grocery store. I go to the grocery store almost every day. The people at Fry's know me, and they joke about it. And I tell them I have four kids. They're like termites. They just eat through the walls. Like I, and so Marcia and I had developed this plan to say, you're only allowed to go to the fridge breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then you have two snack times that you can go into the fridge. After that, you can't. You're eating all of our food, and you're eating because you're bored. Um, and all day yesterday, our four-year-old Ezra was just complaining about how he's hungry, complaining about how he wants a snack. And my response to that grumbling and complaining was, the more you do it, you're not going to get it. Until you could change your attitude and speak to me respectfully and, and speak to me in a way that, that uh, isn't just whining about it, you're just not going to get it. You're not going to get anything by doing that. That's how I respond to grumbling. And what's so fascinating here in Exodus chapter 16 is that God responds to their grumbling. Verse 9, Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Uh-oh. And then verse 10, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, towards the wilderness, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. And then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. How does God respond to this grumbling? With compassion. With grace. Do the Israelites deserve it? I think we'd all say, like, let them, let them starve for a little bit, right? Let them feel this. Wait till they, you know, humble themselves and come before you and, and thank you for what has just happened. And, God shows up, the glory of the Lord shows up, the presence of God shows up, and he provides for them in the midst of their grumbling. This is grace. We seem to constantly need to be reminded that God is good and that God is better than we imagined. And this God who doesn't respond like I would respond to my children, and I feel like I'm a loving father, this God responds with this gift of provision. And what we start to find here is that it's not about Israel's failing and grumbling to discern what God is doing. It's about God's goodness and grace that provides for them in the midst of the ways that they've fallen short here. There's this compassionate God who shows up, and out of the wilderness comes this unexpected provision for the people of God. This is the God who Abraham learns is called Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Even when we don't deserve it, he shows up and he provides. And there's this manna narrative that takes place. Uh, and we see that 
It's interesting the language that is used here. In the evening bread, or in the evening meat, this quail miraculously show up, birds that they're fed. And then in the morning bread, manna. Evening and morning. And then he starts to give them instructions on how to consume this provision. And he, he sets all these rules in place. And what we find is that, first of all, the manna is a, a fascinating discussion. You know, what is the manna? There's all sorts of thoughts about it. Um, it's, it's, it's called this bread that comes from heaven. Um, it, it's, uh, some descriptions of it are flaky. Some of it's like it's the dew that shows up in the morning. Uh, but, but they're told to take enough for the day and to not store it, because if they store it, it goes bad. And they're told every single morning, you're going to show up, and there's going to be provision here, and there's going to be manna, and it's going to be food for you. And take enough just for your household. Don't take more. Don't hoard it. Don't store it up. There'll be more tomorrow. Eat the manna. More will come. Except for the day before the Sabbath, they're told to take a double portion. And for whatever reason, that day, you can store it, and it won't go bad. And there's this relationship that starts evening the birds, morning the bread. We find that at the end of their time wandering, wandering in the wilderness, they're told to take this bread and to put it into a jar and to store it, to be this reminder, this symbolic uh, reminder for them that God has provided. And they're given instructions on the Sabbath not to go out and to not gather the manna on that day. And it's interesting as you, you start to see this rhythm that, that is put into their schedule of evening and then morning and then the Sabbath day that they're supposed to not gather. It's, there's this echo of creation, this rhythm that they start to have for 40 years, evening and then morning and then Sabbath and rest. This echo of this reminder that God who is the, the creator of life also is the giver of life and the sustainer of life. And for 40 years, there's this rhythm Evening, the quail. Morning, the manna. Sabbath. In Egypt, they're slaves. They make bricks. They don't have a day off. They don't have a Sabbath. This is grace. This is this God who is, is, is working a rhythm into their life that, that is in tune with creation, that is a healthy way to live. And they become dependent on him day and night and day and night the giver and sustainer of life. God gives them manna, bread from heaven. We look back, Moses is saying in Deuteronomy, let us not forget that we were dependent on this God who provided. But then this manna narrative also is foreshadowing, this, this bread from heaven that is life-giving and sustaining. There's also foreshadowing for something that's to come later. And it's interesting as we look forward and as we uh, start to look at the, the story of Scripture, uh, we land in Matthew chapter 4. This story of bread comes back up. And here is Jesus being led into the wilderness. Matthew 4 1 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Go figure. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, where have we heard that phrase before? Deuteronomy 8. Here we have Jesus quoting scripture. He's hungry. He's been fasting. The devil shows up and he's tempting him. And Jesus starts to take this idea of this, this physical provision that God gives 
and he, he reorients it to the subject of himself and the God's word. He says, where I get my fulfillment, where I get my life, my sustenance is the word of God. Physical needs are the secondary needs to the spiritual need, the spiritual responsibility of obedience and faithfulness. There's this intimate relationship where God says, where Christ is saying, I get my life from the word, from the Father. When I think about this, uh, this provision relationship where we're dependent upon God daily for our daily bread, uh, it's something that I think is hard for us as adults who are probably highly motivated people. We don't want to be dependent on anything. Uh, we, we want to like fend for ourselves and make it in life. Tyler and Sarah just had a baby, and uh, really cute, cute baby. Uh, Sarah's in the back. Hey, Sarah. <laughs> um, didn't know you are going to be here today. <laughs> Tyler and Sarah had a baby, and I got a chance to, to go see it and hold it and was reminded of how small this baby is and how precious this baby is. And my daughter is almost uh, a year and a half now, and compared to Tyler and uh, Sarah's baby, my, my baby all of a sudden looks like a like a real human, it's crazy. It's amazing how big they get. But there's something so sweet in those early days of, of uh, the, the, the nursing and taking care of a baby. The baby has to eat every two to three hours. And it's exhausting for the parents, right? Like, you can't sleep through the night because every two to three hours you're waking up to nurse. Unless you have one of those like special babies that can sleep six hours a night. Um, we never had one of those. <laughs> But there's something so intimate about that time with the parents and the baby. Every two to three hours, there's, there's the, the nursing, the feeding. The baby's close to the parent's heart. There's something very intimate about that that is so precious in that relationship. And I think that God desires that type of intimacy with us. This daily bread. We rely on him daily. This life-giving thing where we're close to him and he feeds us the manna from heaven, as Jesus makes this this spiritual responsibility that we get our life, our sustenance from the word of God. Then he goes on to say this in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus is he's speaking. He says, he says, in the very true I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus takes this story and this this reminder of, of the history of God's people where God provided life and sustenance daily. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is where true life is found. Life that is eternal life, that, that is uh, 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 it's in this world, but it's not of this world. It's life that is in touch with the kingdom of God, with heaven. There's no hunger. There's no thirst. There's restoration here. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And I think so much like the story of the Israelites in Exodus 16 <laughs> that, that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's life that is given to us when we don't even deserve it. It's grace. Jesus 
Maybe he looks at each one of our lives, sees us in our grumbling, sees us in our forgetfulness, remembering things inaccurately about our past, entitled, whatever it is. We don't deserve it. And Jesus shows up and he gives us life that is eternal. Life that is truly life. The bread of life, Jesus shows up. And this is grace as well. The story that we're a part of. Much like the Israelites 3,000 years ago. Is that God has set us free. The things that enslave us. It doesn't mean life is going to be easy and that we're not going to just be, um, everything's going to be wonderful now. But in the midst of the ways that we fall short, he offers us this gift of provision of life that's eternal. That life starts here and now, and that life is our future, life that is eternal. The bread of life. A couple of questions to reflect on with this story. Will we trust God's love, his steadfast love and care and provision? Do we grumble against him? Does that grumbling continue? Do we step into this life of dependency on him, not seeking life outside of him, trusting that he's good, that his love is steadfast, that he is the provider of life? Will we respond to God's direction in our lives? Do we discern him at work in the ordinary, follow him to extraordinary heights? And will we be Christ's body for others in this world? As we start to understand that this blessing of life that comes from him, which is salvation, it's not just for us. But we're called to be a certain kind of people here and now that offers that life to everyone else around us. Will we be the body of Christ to the rest of the world? We close each week with uh, communion. And communion is symbolic just so happens that it's bread. Bread that represents the body of Christ. The bread of life. This body gives us life because it was broken open on the cross. Where Christ looks at everything about us, the ways that we are broken and falling short, and breaks his body for us. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood that was poured out on the cross. And we believe that on the cross, this sacred moment, Something happens where God takes all the things in this world that are broken and starts to put them back together and all of the things that are broken inside of us and starts to put it back together. And his death and resurrection conquers sin, sets us free to experience life that is truly life. We take a bread and we're reminded of that sacrifice. And we remember what God has done, this bread of life. And we take the cup and we remember. And then we proclaim the resurrection, and we become this living Eucharist, this living gift to the world around us as the body of Christ. Today, as we go to communion, let us remember that. Maybe today, as you uh, are getting ready for communion, maybe you've never taken it before. Maybe you've never experienced this life that God offers, this life that Jesus offers. We want to invite you to that today. It can start here, it can start now. If you not, have not experienced that life, life that is eternal, where you'll never go hungry or thirsty, 
a life that is in tune with the kingdom of heaven, we invite you to that story today. If you'd like to, to know more about that, um, we'd like to talk to you. And maybe you've experienced that life, you've experienced this leaving of Egypt, this salvation, and yet you feel like your life is weary, like you're worn out, like something inside of you is withering. And you just need to tap into the life that God gives. I don't know where you're at today. We'd love to pray with you, to join you in your journey. As we go to communion, the band's going to come back up. Back behind the curtain, behind the soundboard, we'll have some of our prayer team there. If you would just like prayer today, if you'd like to meet with someone or talk with them, we'd love to talk with you. When you're ready to take communion, feel free to do so, but let's use this time to respond. Allow God to speak to us. Allow God to fill us up with his life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for grace. That you wouldn't respond how we respond. We see the story of your provision, Lord, reminded that you're good, that you're better than we imagine, that you have a heart that breaks for us, that breaks open and pours itself out so that we may have life. We're grateful for this unexpected provision. We see that in the wilderness with your people. We see that here and now as we experience your goodness in our life. As we go through this journey and we face the challenges, Lord, may you continue to reveal what's inside of our heart. May you teach us faithfulness. May you continue to sustain us in this land. May you pour out uh, life to us, Lord. We love you so much. 